You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. My name is Dr. Jaron Stout, and I am Dr. Joanne Pio. We are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. We have a very special guest today immunologist Dr. Jacob Glanville, who also made an appearance on the Netflix series Pandemic. Welcome to today's show. Joanna and Jaron, thanks for having me on. So for some of our listeners out there who are not familiar with the Netflix series that you appeared on, we just wanted to give you a chance to maybe give some background um, about your appearance on that show and what it is you're working on and what led you to starting your own company and what is Distributed Bio all about? Sure. So Back in 2012, I co-founded Distributed Bio with two partners, and I was able to build the company around the idea that we could bootstrap therapeutics without traditional venture capital. And we were going to do that by licensing uh, algorithms that I designed to analyze the immune system to a bunch of different pharmaceutical companies that were interested in using those algorithms to mine through people's immune systems to recover better medicines, antibodies, and, and vaccine engineering. Uh, we were then going to use that money to build laboratories and that data to help us directly design those antibodies or those therapeutics ourselves. And then the dream was that I had this idea for how we could use some of those technologies to produce broad spectrum vaccines. So these would be a vaccine, for for instance, for the flu, that instead of having to get a new flu shot every year because the flu changes, it would teach the immune system how to focus on parts of the flu virus that isn't able to mutate from year to year. And if you could do that, then you could have a single flu shot that could protect in a broad spectrum manner against many different types of future flu. So that was uh, part of the plan and the vision of the company. It was a far enough out idea that I was not going to be able to get venture capital to go support it right away. And so what I did instead is I incubated the idea inside of my company while we were growing it. So we spent four years developing the proof for that vaccine down in Guatemala with my lead scientist, Sarah Ives, and a number of my other team members. And what happened with in 2019 was we got reached out to by this ZPZ uh documentary series group. And they said, Hey, we're interested in what you're up to. And we are, we'd like to know if you'd be willing to let us film you. And so my first reaction was like, well, who, who are you guys who sent you? Because I was worried it might be sort of an anti-vaxxer group or something, but they were like, no, we've heard about you from the Gates foundation and uh, from Johnson and Johnson. And so we kind of let them into our lives and we let them film everything we were doing. And my feeling was we're a small company uh, we don't have the clout of these larger companies, but what we do have is, I think, good science. And I was proud of what we were doing. And I kind of was hoping if people would see, it, first off, that it's really hard and that we're working hard to try to make better medicines, that that might help change some hearts and minds about the the value of vaccines. That it's actually, you know, it's not a bunch of like creepy rich people trying to figure out how to give people losses. And it's actually scientists working really hard and, and sacrificing their time in order to try to make better medicine and a better tomorrow. And so I, I let them in to our lives. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out. We don't get like any editorial control over how they portray us. We're not being paid that we're just kind of letting them surf along with us. And I had no idea how much work it was going to be. I thought they might show up for like a week. And instead it was like seven months where they should, they flew down to Guatemala with us twice. Oh, wow. 
they went to our labs in South San Francisco multiple times. They followed me to New York when I gave a lecture at a conference. Um, and over the course of the seven months of filming us, they watched us go through this process of eventually winning a Gates Foundation grant for the work. So we went from like literally climbing through pig poop, which is where we were doing the original studies, was testing a flu vaccine on pigs, to eventually um, I got to meet with Bill Gates and we won a Gates Award um, to support the work. And so that was what had happened. And that's what the Netflix documentary was was following. Very cool. So as soon as you appeared on the series, I immediately loved what you uh, what you were doing, what you stood for. <clears throat> and it's funny, um, my wife frequently accuses me of having a man crush on Tom Brady, right? So, um, but after I saw you on that show, I, I couldn't stop talking about it and, and just, uh, I was very excited about what you were working on and how you were doing it and the, the process you were following and the path you were following. And my wife was like, yeah, I, I haven't seen you talk this much about a guy since Tom Brady. So, <laughs> Good. so, so I, I really, I really love everything you're doing and what you're standing for. And, uh, the fact that you grew up in Guatemala gives you such a unique perspective about access to healthcare. And I love what you said about um, making sure that this vaccine will be in your founding documents. It will be available at cost in uh, developing countries. So, um, so one of the things I noticed is recently uh, Sarah Ives posted an update on Twitter and on your Centivax. Uh, what are some of the updates that have been going on with that? I know it started out as a seven shot series. So is that still the case? Got it. Yeah. So the vaccine, again, we, this is, we've been testing it so far in pigs. And the reason we've been doing pigs and not mice um, is that pigs actually get the flu. And there's a pretty big market, almost a $200 million per year market for flu shots for pigs. And if you could get all pigs around the world to no longer get flu, that would actually protect humans from getting the flu as well. So it serves the human need. Uh, and it's also just good business. If I can make money in the veterinary market, then that allows me to scale up being able to make a lot of shots for humans and it gives me resources. So I'm not dependent on grants or on venture capital. So that, that was the work we, we, at the time of the filming in the Netflix series, we had gotten this super broad spectrum protection, but it required seven shots. So lots of booster shots to get there, which is never going to be practical. There's no farmer who's ever going to let you give your, give their pig seven shots. Uh, we're now down to three shots, and we're now supported by the Gates Foundation. We're testing a series of other adjuvants. So these are like oils and other chemicals that you mix in with your vaccines, and those are designed to sort of annoy the immune system. And we're trying to see if, if one of these new adjuvants will let us get down to one or two or three shots. Uh, within the pig market, you ideally want one shot. Farmers will put up with two. Anything beyond that is just impractical. For humans, I still think because of adherence issues, you're better off with one or two shots. Um, too many boosters is a problem. But if you have a truly universal vaccine, I think people might be able to be willing to come back to get a couple boosters. And then um, with your Centivax, when are you aiming to release this vaccine? Sure. So the studies right now are we're in the middle of what's called preclinical. So that studies in pigs, and we're also doing studies in ferrets. So the uh, ferret is, for historical reasons, an animal that you want to test your flu vaccines in before you go into humans. 
And so we're doing both of those sets of studies this year. We were slowed down a little bit by the coronavirus uh, outbreak. We were originally planning to work with the Gates Foundation to do these studies with a laboratory in England. And I think a combination of Brexit and then coronavirus made that harder. So now we're working with American companies. Um, those are going to happen throughout this year. We're going to do something called a live challenge. And what that means is that we give our vaccine to some pigs and separately to some ferrets. And then you give them a little time for the vaccine to kick in. And then you basically spritz them in the nose with, with flu. And you're spritzing them in the nose with like a future flu, which was like if we make our vaccine a formulation from 2008, we would then spritz them with 2015. And then you're asking the question, does our vaccine protect them against future forms of flu? And that, that's a critical question that tells you that your vaccine is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is broad spectrum protection. We should get that result, let's say, by the end of the year, assuming that we don't have more delays around coronavirus. Um, and that puts us in a position, assuming that it was safe and effective, of going into the veterinary market, which would happen across 2021 would be a lot of manufacturing. And so you're really at Cinderella 2022. That could hit the veterinary market. And then for humans, it would be the same process you've probably been hearing all over the news recently for COVID. You have to go do manufacturing of your drug. You have to do safety checks, safety and toxicity. You have to get approval from the FDA. And then you have to run human trials. And that's a phase one, phase two, and then a phase three human trial. Adding all that stuff up, uh, I used to think that we would have the drug available by 2025. I think we've actually learned a lot from the common, the coronavirus crisis. For all the terrible things, I think one of the benefits, at least from my profession, is that it's teaching us how fast you can actually make new medicines pop up safely and effectively, but, but how to cut certain types of red tape to go faster. So I, I think 2025 is a, a pretty reliable number, and that's a number we'd be aiming to beat with that vaccine. Very good. So in about five years. And then one question that I had is that many of our listeners um, specialize with the elderly population. Um, and what we've seen with the flu vaccine is that um, it's not as effective in the elderly population or those who are immunocompromised. So one thing that has been recommended for the seasonal flu vaccine is to use the high dose formulation. How will the um, your vaccine approach the elderly population? Is that something you considered? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the problem you're referring to is called immunosenescence. And it basically means that the immune system is getting old as the person does. Uh, I spent a good amount of time when I was at Stanford looking through this, this large cohort called the Ellison cohort. And this was over 100 people that were being they were receiving the flu shot year after year. And afterwards, they would offer blood and we would send their blood through all sorts of fancy different immunological interrogation systems. And you, it, you learned a bunch of really interesting stuff about how some elderly people would continue to have great immune responses. Some of them would respond against some but not other components in the vaccine. And some would, you might as well have just injected them with water because they had no response. Uh, the challenge with immunosenescence is we don't really understand how it works. It, it is the case with the current flu shot, you just try giving them a bigger dose. The other thing you could try doing is giving them a second boost. Uh, right now, the way my broad spectrum vaccine technology works is that it trains the immune system to respond to the conserved sites on a virus that doesn't change easily from year to year. And it does a really good job of doing that, but it is depending on the ability of the immune system to respond. So if someone was completely immunocompromised or if they're getting older, 
uh, that's a problem that my vaccine technology by itself wouldn't necessarily address. So we could try a higher dose boost or a second boost, or we could try a different adjuvant. But, but I think we are going to continue to face that challenge in the aging population. Very good. Uh, very interesting uh, that it's uh, uh, it kind of a paradox in medicine and, and it'll be a kind of a, in a situation to kind of figure it out as we go along. Um, yeah, it's pretty trippy. It, the other thing that you notice in those data sets is that it, it seems like older people start separating. So there's like a group of older people who look kind of the same. And there's a second group. It's called a bimodal distribution. There's a second, it's like a subset of elder, elderly get much worse. So something happens to their immune system. And we don't know what it is, but it doesn't happen uniformly to all of the old people. And once we figure that out, it will be very good for vaccine engineering. Uh, but in the meantime, we just will do what we can. So do you think um, pharmacogenetics or the ability to tailor a medication regimen to somebody's genetic code will be useful in the, in the future of vaccine development as well? You guys ask, you guys ask really awesome questions. Uh, yeah. So I did a study with uh, Wayne Morasco at Harvard. Uh, he was, he's very interested in what are called allele polymorphisms, So genetic differences that are found in the part of the genome, which is called the IGH locus that governs how we make antibodies. And what he had demonstrated in, in the paper I worked on with him as well as some other papers is that there are some allele, allele variations, so some genetic variations that different people might inherit differently that predispose people a little bit towards getting a better immune response uh, against a flu shot. And the reason for his work was to identify those things and therefore, um, uh, therefore ask the question of whether it's worth creating sort of bespoke or uh, genotype-specific uh, vaccines, which is to say that you might um, ask uh, associate a diagnostic where it checks a little bit of the genome of the person to the type of vaccine they would receive. I think at this point, this is a theoretical question. At this point, my feeling is that the focusing strategy I'm applying should be able to sort of brute force overwhelm any of the underlying genetic differences that might exist in the uh, antibody repertoire between the different recipients. So that I think uh, epitope focusing should overcome the problem. And my this is kind of a deep theoretical point, but it, the, basically the idea is that if your genetics might influence the kind of character of the 100 million or so antibodies that you have in your body, so you might have a different distribution depending on your genetics, no matter on that distribution, with enough sort of vaccine pressure, you can teach the immune system to focus on any given site. And my argument for that is that people with different genetics, they're not like fundamentally corrupted in their ability to target certain immune uh, target certain pathogens. And we know that different species, things like dogs and cats and rabbits that have radically different repertoires, that's the collection of antibodies, they're all able to live out, you know, reasonably healthy, decent lives. And that tells me that the, the ability of our body to create this massive repertoire of 100 million different antibodies is so powerful and that that diversity is so great that it can kind of overcome any of the individual genetic wrinkles. So they may systematically shift or bias us towards certain types of responses, but the system has kind of a lot more signal than noise to overcome those problems. This is a theory that I have, but, but that is a, a feeling that with respect to the repertoire, we're okay. Uh, to really get into the weeds here, and I promise I'm almost done, I think an area where there, there could be an issue would be um, looking at the immunogenetics of the other accessory um, signaling factors in the immune system. So these would be like cytokines and chemokines. This could be uh, a bunch of the 
receptor complexes that form the T cell uh, MHC receptor engagement, uh, and, and a series of other receptors that um, govern the behavior of certain types of immune cells and how they talk to each other or complement cascade. There's a couple of sort of master switches in, the, in those systems. These are like um, chemokines and they're signaling molecules that could influence many other genes. And it could sort of a, a create a set point for how the entire immune system of a certain person might skew kind of, let's say, hot. So they may be more prone towards uh, autoimmunity or another person might skew low. They might have kind of a very relaxed immune system, but it might be prone towards infection. I think those things could affect uh, vaccines, and I, I think that's an area worthy of additional study. Very fascinating. I, I I love this stuff. I could I could talk about this all day. So I don't know if this is a question more appropriate for a virologist, but how much antigenic shift and drift occurs through the amplifier animals, or is it mostly in the humans where it, where it occurs? God, God, this is an awesome interview. Uh yes. So. Uh, uh, so is it okay if I just go in the weeds repeatedly? Because this is these are absolutely, awesome questions. Yes. Okay, yeah. So with respect to flu, it is absolutely the case that your antigenic shift problem is happening in pigs. So there have been five major pandemics of the last century, with the most notorious of those being uh, the Spanish flu uh, in 1918 that killed more people than World War I. There's an estimated 50 to 100 million people dead. Uh, that, that, as well as all the other pandemic uh, events, we have basically like you can essentially do like a CSI biopsy of the virus to understand where did the pieces of this new virus come from. And the reason a pandemic becomes a pandemic is that it look, the virus looks very different than what the community of humans has been exposed to for years previous. And so the, they're basically they have no defense. And the way you make a pandemic strain is you shuffle it up with pieces of, of genetic diversity outside of what humans have been exposed to. Where, do you, where does that come from? Aha, it almost always comes from pigs. So the, your major reservoirs of flus that humans experience are A, the human population, and there you're largely dealing with H1s, H3s, and you know, HABs. But next step over are swine, so porcine flus. So we heard about swine flu from 2009, but all the other pandemics had pieces of swine uh, influenza shuffled into them. Uh, and then your next, your major reservoir are avian flus. So the, actually the vast majority of influenza on the planet is flying above us, above our heads in circling populations of birds that are flying all over the place. But the thing that's protecting us from those flus is that birds have a slightly different body temperature and their receptors on their lung tissue and other cells are a little bit different. So the, those avian flus are typically not well adapted to infect mammals. The problem with pigs is that they are uh, relatively permissive to be able to be infected a little bit better than humans are with, with avian flus. And there's just a lot more pigs interacting with a lot more birds in these massive farms, these massive industrial farms. And so it becomes a, math, a combinatorial mathematical problem where if you have suddenly 10,000 pigs and they're adjacent to a lake and there's a whole bunch of chickens and there's birds flying over. I, I heard at a, a presentation where actually where I was at the Gates Foundation, um, this guy was talking about how they found 73 different genetic variants of influenza circulating in one farm. And it just creates a nightmare possibility where a pig could be infected simultaneously with a pig version of a flu, a human version, maybe even an avian version. And when you have co-infection, the RNA is able to recombine or shuffle across itself. And that ends up creating essentially a library of new variants. And unfortunately, some of those library combinations give rise to an effective new strain, which is able to fold up and create virion particles, which is able to become a new functioning virus. But now it's a new virus that has parts on it that are unrecognizable to humans in their, their immune history. And therefore, it's able to wash across the population with no protection. So pigs are our single biggest problem of new pandemics. And 
that's what part of the reason we're focusing on it with a broad spectrum vaccine is if you can go and vaccinate pig populations so they're no longer getting the flu, then that's one step closer to creating an entirely influenza, for, like post-influenza humanity, because you can kind of like stop the, the new viruses from sneaking into the population in the first place. Exactly. And that's kind of the direction I was going, because I recently read a book, uh, Deadliest Enemy, written by an epidemiologist who's making a lot of appearances with the, the current pandemic. But one of the things he mentioned in there is, you know, SARS was the outbreak of O2. And then a few years later, there was MERS. And it, they found out that MERS was coming from camels. Yep. And he was uh, suggesting that if we start vaccinating these camels, we'll have less likelihood that it's going to jump and become more lethal in humans. Yep. Yeah. If you can block the recombination species, especially if it's a very abundant recombination species, that's just going to get you one step one step safer from human populations having to suffer those viruses. Exactly. And, and so I was wondering, and you kind of touched on it just now, is uh, that's something we sh should start considering with the influenza viruses, vaccinating birds or pigs that where they're, they're incubating and they're mutating and they're, they're get, creating more possibilities to mutate and to spread to, to, to humans as well. So yeah, uh, very fascinating. Yeah. But, uh, so the economics of it, which plays a part, you know, uh, is that, Pigs are sort of the sweet spot that first off, they're, they're a mammal. They're highly abundant. So just like the total amount of like pig mass on the planet is substantial. Uh, and they're, it takes long enough to raise a pig and the value of a pig is enough that it becomes financially worthwhile to vaccinate them. So it's a really good target. The problem with chickens is that there's lots of chickens, but like a lot of the food, like the chickens, you like a broiler chicken, I think they only grow them for like six weeks. So it's, it's kind of not even enough time to be worth vaccinating them through traditional route. There are certain types of vaccines they give to chickens. Some, some ch vaccines they even give to the eggs, uh, which is oh. crazy. You're able to vaccinate the, I think it's basically a attenuated live virus you inject into the egg to give a little bit of a boost on how quickly you're vaccinating. Um, uh, but, but the, the money is such that even in when basically if there's a major flu outbreak that affects chickens, they cull the chickens, but they don't always routinely vaccinate them. The market doesn't necessarily justify things because it would have to be like a couple cents per the, the cost of the shot would have to be less than a syringe. So you need to find some way to like make a, a vaccine that would live in, in chicken feed. Uh, the one, the exception there is uh, turkeys. It's a turkeys take longer to grow. You grow them all at once. So you could lose your entire, you know, your, your Thanksgiving, Monty Hall all goes away if they all get sick at once. So they typically do try to give vaccines to turkeys. So that's sort of the, the landscape of opportunity. And also, like, it doesn't matter. You're not as worried about bird flus because bird flus typically don't jump to humans very efficiently. And when they do, they could be deadly, but they don't transmit very easily. So it's the mammalian ones right. that you're worried about. Interesting.